Well, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Let's prepare to let God's Word um, weigh in on us in a beautiful way this morning. Mark 8 is where we'll focus most of our attention. I, I want to set the stage by asking you this question. Though. Have you ever met someone who's, who's kind of a prove-it kind of person? My parents met someone like that. I think they would say it was when I was born. Uh, so, and then I think I met someone like that when I had our son. I think it kind of runs in the genes. I'm not sure. But you could be talking to them about something, and, and they're just going to kind of want to just make sure that they're making sure that they're making sure. And, and that's not, in, in our case, I don't think with, our, with my parents or with our kids, it comes from a bad heart. It's just kind of a, a knack you have. Well, show me that or prove it. And, but there are those, however, that they don't really mean prove it as if if you were to actually prove it, they would then be with you. It's just a delay tactic. It's just a denial tactic. They're just trying to put you off because they're never going to come around to your way of thinking, so to speak. You ever met someone like that? That's the way the Pharisees were. They were a proven bunch of testers who never really intended to see it the Lord's way. But they didn't want to say that because they wanted to look religious. And so they just kept giving this impression that if you'll show us one more sign, we'll jump on board the Messiah train. It was never going to happen. And what I think is so interesting is in this text, we see such a, a clear contrast between a group of folks who, in the middle of the forest, they actually begin to see the forest. And yet, here's a group of folks called the Pharisees who, in the middle of the forest, can't even see that they're actually in the forest. It's like the old phrase, missing the forest for the trees. This is where the Pharisees are. And the disciples are, without knowing it, somewhat close, and Christ warns them and shows them, I won't let that happen to you. So it's an interesting contrast here as we look at Mark chapter 8. And this prove it bunch of testers. Look with me at verse 11, would you? This is where it begins. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. You notice that? That verse is packed with meaning. They Notice they were initially arguing, and yet it says they're seeking from him a sign, but it's not a sign to actually validate what he's already proven. It's a sign because they just, they're, they're doing this to test him. So their motives from the get-go aren't right. And this verse lays it out pretty clearly. They came, they began to argue, they're seeking him a sign from heaven to test him. Now let's just pause there for a moment because what they're seeking from him actually had occurred throughout his ministry. He's a year and a half at least into his ministry. He's performed many miracles. Uh, you've tracked along with us. And you've seen him cast out demons, he's healed people, he's healed men, women, he's raised folks from the dead. So what in the world are they saying when they say, uh, could you give us a sign? I would say to that, uh, are you blind? What do you think I've been doing, right? That's what I would tend to say. The reason he says next, he sighs deeply in verse 12, in his spirit. That word there, by the way, means to bring something up from this guttural kind of level. Like a real deep down intense form of like, I mean, I can't even really emphasize or show you what it's like, but it's this deep sense of, of sadness. 
And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Why would he say that when you could possibly argue that he's been giving signs for about a year and a half now? What were all these miracles? The raising of the dead, the exorcisms, like what's going on? If those aren't signs, I don't know what is, right? The key is in understanding two words here. When the Pharisees are asking for a sign, it's hard to know this in the English translation, they're not using the word that is used to describe the moments that Christ performs miracles. They're not using the same word. They're wanting a different kind of sign. Notice the next words, from heaven. They want some type of Yahweh, at least in their mind, Yahweh, Jehovah-like authentication, affirmation that you're the Messiah. And they're not content with the power that he's displayed proving that. See, the word used for all of his miracles, for the things that he's done to show that he's God, is the word power. It's not the word sign. Now, those power workings, those miracles, are indicators. They are signs, okay? But the Pharisees here are saying they're not good enough for us. Not what we're looking for. Come on, could you prove it one more time? But let me ask you a question. If he'd have done one more miracle on this spot, would they have believed him? No. Because their intention was never to believe. Their intention was to retain authority. You remember the key word that's used about Christ throughout his miracles? Who is this man with this what? Authority. How does he do these things? Where does he come from? Like, what's his source? And the Pharisees realized we can't control this man. He's outside of our boundaries. He's got authority we don't have. And so the real issue here is not, if you'll just show us one more miracle, if you'll prove it to us, then we'll be on board the Messiah train. That's not their intention. They're trying to make sure that they retain authority. They want it to be on their terms, not his. And no one comes to Christ on their own terms. Are you hearing me, church? No one comes to Christ on their own terms. You don't negotiate or bargain with God. It's his terms. And so this is why he sighs deeply and says, there'll be no sign of this type. Is a good way to read that. There'll be no sign of this type given to this generation. The, the, the name generation there probably refers to the house of Israel to those Jews right there who are, who are as John 1.12 says, he came to them, but his own did not receive him. They're represented by their religious leaders and scribes. and They're rejecting him. And so he, in turn, and hear this well, rejects them. Verse 13, he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. And I would remind you that this marker in our text, it delineates really the moment that Jesus, for the most part, officially ends his public Galilean ministry. He doesn't return. For the most part, he's kind of done with the crowds. We're going to see a marked difference beginning about the end of chapter 8 and beginning of 9, where he spends most of his time, and what Mark records is just the beginning of his work with just the disciples. So here's Christ saying to these pretenders, um, these stiff-necked people, you'll have no sign of the type that you're wanting. I've given indicators. I've worked miracles. You should see the truth, but you're missing the forest for the trees because you want it on your terms. 
Can I just say this to you before we kind of make observation number one? Just understand this, that faith that demands proof isn't really faith at all. It's veiled doubt. For instance, let's say that when I went out of town, I always hired a private eye to keep tabs on Julie. Like, hey, don't tell her, but I want you to watch my wife. She tells me she's being faithful, and I trust her, but could you just watch her in case? You tell me something. Would I have faith in my wife? What if when I came back, I said, honey, were you faithful while I was gone? She said, yes. Well, I'll check with the private eye first. Now, some of you now are saying, hey, Todd, what about the old Reagan line, trust but verify? Let me just tell you, in scriptural terms, faith that demands proof isn't faith. We trust Christ, we depend on him, and then we see the evidence, we believe him. Resurrection, the historical cross, those are all evidences, yes, but we don't sit and say, and demand that, or else we won't believe. Does that make sense? It's this whole idea of coming to him on our own terms. Us demanding, that's not faith at all. That's actually the kind of little sin that corrupts faith. This is exactly what Jesus said when he left and got into the boat with his disciples. Let's keep reading, can we? Because we see the first observation is this, that Jesus will not pretend, he'll not pretend with stiff unbelief. He's not going to play that game with people. Acting like we believe, just give me one more sign, I'll just, just one more word, can we just see one more thing? And we kind of have this verbal lingo like we're interested, that we're curious, that we're almost there, but our hearts are actually stiff-necked. They're concretely set in unbelief. Christ will not play that game. He doesn't with the Pharisees. He just leaves. He says, I'm not giving you a sign. They're all around you. Just open your eyes. If you're not willing to, I'm leaving. He gets in the boat, verse 14, and it says that they realized then that they had forgotten to bring bread. So the sense is that he leaves the area pretty quickly, not a lot of, uh, you know, advance notice. And so they get in the boat, they go on the other side, and they, forget, they realize they have no bread. They only had one loaf with them, which is in essence not much bread for all the people there. And then he cautions them in verse 15, watch this, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, we're not told explicitly what the leaven is. But we need to make a contextual um, guess, we'll call it that. And my sense is that the leaven is this idea of wanting signs, acting like you're close when you're really stiff-necked, like pretending that you want to believe when you really have no intention to believe. God will never meet your demands, and you know that, but you're just wanting to keep up the image of, of, of self-righteousness. I think he's speaking of that. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So in both the political arena, both in the spiritual arena, this idea that, that we're kind of close, we're interested, but we won't tell anybody we're actually not. He says that's like a little bit of leaven. And what does leaven do? Leaven affects a larger lump, doesn't it? He's saying watch out for, for that little bit of unbelief in your heart, that little seed that you don't want to deal with, that little bit that says, yeah, I'm, I'm really, 
a thousand miles from believing, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to be honest. I'm not going to be authentic. So I don't want folks to think, you know, the worst of me. So you kind of keep this image up. He says, beware of that. And then verse 16 is an amazing moment. They begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. In other words, they were concerned about no supper because they got in the boat, so in a hurry, they didn't have but one loaf. He makes this kind of spiritual statement in light of what just occurred. Like, guys, don't go that direction. One commentator says this. He thinks that he was warning the disciples that they were closer to that than they realized. Because remember, for many chapters, they're just not getting it, right? They're, they're slow and they're just hard to bring along. And so he's speaking to them in spiritual terms and they're still thinking about the bread He's on a spiritual level. They're on a physical level. And so Jesus here kind of begins a, um, and I don't want to use the word rant, but he does go into this somewhat eight-question response to them. Maybe if you were to wonder what Jesus may have looked like at this moment, maybe check this out on the screen. This may have been a picture of what he may have been kind of thinking. You know, maybe <laughs> something like that. Or maybe something like this, perhaps. Let's see. Like, uh, yeah, you ever felt that way? Okay, all humor aside, he was probably just a little frustrated, uh, irritated, like, man, you guys just seem like you just can't grasp this. Look at his questions. There's eight of them. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? They probably would have answered, uh, because we're hungry. <laughs> Do you not yet perceive or understand? You see that phrase? Underline that second question. Draw a line to the end of verse 21. He asked that same question again. Notice that? This is really the, the heartbeat of what he's asking. It was the same thing he asked in the earlier chapters whenever they would just miss the moment. Oh, we didn't connect the, the uh, loaf miracle and the feeding of the 5,000 with walking on the water. We didn't connect that at all. They're just slow to connect the dots. He's saying this again. Guys, do you not get this? He says, are your hearts Hardened. Remember that was a word used earlier? The calloused, kind of uh, layered over. Having eyes, verse 18, having eyes, do you not see and having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, say with me, church, 12. So they remember that. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, how many? Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? I think that last question is more of a statement. Could you finally put the dots together? Now to remind you that, some, that one of the things he mentions here just occurred in chapter 7. It's the fitting of the 4,000. You can turn back left a little bit and notice it's at the end of chapter, um, actually beginning of chapter 8 is where it is. It's... In the, the, the last of three miracles there, there's the Syrophoenician woman's faith, the Gentile woman who had the daughter, who had the demon. And then there's the deaf and mute man. And then there's the feeding of the 4,000. Three actual signs, we'll call them, in the right sense of the word, that the Pharisees refused to admit that the disciples were slow to get. But he references about one of these at least. He says, guys, do you remember what just happened Here's what I love about this, because we don't have recorded for us any of their answers. It's just eight questions. They do answer the numbers, right? You, it's almost like they're a little timid, like, how many baskets did I take up? Twelve? Uh, uh, you know, four or seven? They're answering, but they're probably a little like, man, the master is just, 
he's so patient with us, but you can tell he wants us to get this. So what does he do? And what I think is one of the more bizarre moments in Christ's ministry, I think what he does next is he shows them physically what he's going to do for them spiritually. In other words, in one sense, you could say this, I think Christ here flips the tables. What was happening currently in the boat? He was talking spiritually, and they're thinking what? He's concerned about their faith, and they're thinking about their food. So I think he meets them on their level, and he says, okay, guys, you're just not getting it. I'm working with you. I'm patient with you. I'm going to show you physically. So he's going to paint a physical illustration of how he's going to help them spiritually. Watch what he does. Verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And so he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now that seems odd to me, that Jesus would perform a miracle that wasn't quite fully complete. You get that? Like, man, did he, did he have a bad day or something? Or what's going on with that, you know? In fact, this is the only two-stage miracle in the whole New Testament. There's no other miracle that Christ seems to take. Okay, part two's coming. Hang on. I'll, almost like, a, can I have another swing at this? That's not what's happening. But you get that impression. You're like, man, did he not do it well enough the first time? What's happening? None of that's in the picture. I think he's showing them physically what it's like to work with them spiritually. He's like, guys, you are slow in seeing but I will do for you spiritually what I'm going to do for this man. And so he takes some time. He heals him. Then he says, okay, how do you see? He says, oh, I just look like trees. So then, verse 25, he lays his hands on his eyes again, and he opens his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I think this is a physical illustration of what Jesus was going to do with his disciples spiritually. Like, just little by little, I'm going to bring you along. I'm going to help you see everything clearly. And why would he do that? Because they were, they were opposite of the Pharisees in that their heart wasn't to test the Lord. It wasn't settled in unbelief. It wasn't to trick him or to come on their terms. They, they had an honest, sincere, we believe you heart. We just don't understand. We've got a lot of questions. And so they were honest about that. And here's what I'm discovering. When that's your posture, Jesus is very patient with you. Amen. So what you see here is, this, is these two groups juxtaposed against each other. One, acting like they're close, that they're interested, but really their heart is far from God. And they just want to test him. And they really don't want him to prove it because if he did, again, they wouldn't believe anyway. Their minds are made up. Their heart is concretely settled in unbelief. Yet here's disciples who admittedly don't get things either. They're, they're having a hard time connecting the dots, but they're honest about it. And man, Jesus is so patient with them. So he won't pretend with stiff-necked people, but he's extremely patient with those who are willing to ask honest questions. Man, that's comforting, isn't it? That Jesus is patient with those of us who have slow faith. Verse 26 closes out the story by saying, just go home, but don't enter the village. This is a hard thing to grasp because he does this several times in the previous miracles in this one, he often tells folks not to say anything or don't broadcast it. Sometimes they would obey, other times they wouldn't. His point was, 
He was just trying to honor what we call like the messianic time frame, the messianic timeline. And so that's the same sense here. I love the fact that Christ uses this miracle to show the disciples what he's going to do for them spiritually. He will slowly but surely walk with them and open their eyes and help them get it. It says to me this, church, that none of us get it on our own, do we? Jesus gets us there. And he's patient with us when we are slow in that process. But I'm so thankful he's patient with us, aren't you? So it kind of brings me um, to make sure you're aware of something here. This understanding, this contrast, let me just kind of draw it out for you a little bit. Between, and I use two words to kind of describe it. Stiffness and slowness. And I hope your heart will be glad this morning because there's not a single person here that probably isn't in the slowness category. I'm in there. You're probably in there. I mean, sometimes we think we're fast, but, you know, truth be known, we're probably all just slow of faith at times. But you, you have honest questions and you want to believe. So you have this, this honest posture before the Lord. When we're slow, Jesus is patient. It's the stiffness that he will not tolerate. When you have already settled that you're not believing, even if you have the answers. That's what they were saying. Hey, one more sign. But the truth is, they had already had, they already had the answers, and they still were not going to believe. Whereas the disciples, they had all the questions, but yet they were already in. They had believed. They wanted to trust. Does that make sense? So it's a contrast here between stiffness and slowness. And this realization, this contrast, this understanding of this text should, should cause every single person in this room to have one of two emotions right now. You should have nervous dreadfulness or joyful anticipation. If you are stiff-necked, if you're pretending, if you're just acting like, just give me one more day, just one more sign, but you know full well your mind's made up, your heart's settled in unbelief, and you only want to come to God on your terms, you should be nervously uh, uh, dreading the fact that God will not play that game with you. He won't play tit for tat back and forth. What he wants is unadulterated faith in who he is at his word, even with your questions. He's given signs already, the greatest one being himself, by the way. He was the greatest sign. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies in living color, he was the Messiah. So his birth and his life, in addition, of course, the, the things that he did, all those speak to who he is. And if in the face of all of that evidence, you still demand proof. Well, just one more, Jesus. When really your heart's saying, no, it'll take a thousand more. I'll never get there. I want to remind you. Psalm 138 says this, God is far 
from the proud. That when we're stiff-necked, God opposes us. You should be dreadfully nervous. But if you are simply slow of faith, have a thousand questions, but believe that Jesus is the Christ, you can't quite figure it all out, but you're willing to walk by faith and believe, man, you should have joyful anticipation. You know why? Because Jesus is going to bring you all the way home every step of the way. He's going to increase your sight little by little. He'll make sure that at the end you see clearly. Amen? He's got you. Now doctrinally, this is called progressive sanctification. Can you say those two big words with me? Progressive sanctification. What it means is this. That there's an initial moment in time in which God sets us apart. He calls us holy positionally. He calls us saints. This is Ephesians, Philippians, even in the Old Testament. You find God setting people apart and positionally calling them holy. But then how that's worked out and lived is in a progressive fashion because no one, the day they're saved, is perfectly holy practically. And the whole church says what? Amen on that. In fact, it takes years and years, and no one ever reaches sinless perfection, by the way, on the earth. That used to be taught in some denominations. It's clearly unbiblical. What we have is the promise that once Christ sets us apart, then he will, by his power, gradually continue to refine us, correct us, mold us, and shape us. And then we play a part in that by participating and striving after holiness. There's discipline. There's adding to our faith uh, moral excellence and patience and these things. So there's this intertwining and this sanctification of, of God's power, our participation. But it's a lifetime. And then when Christ comes, he will finish his work. He will make us perfectly holy in his presence. That's why it's called progressive Sanctification. I think that's all that's going on here, doctrinally. He's saying to his disciples, guys, I know you're slow. It's a little frustrating, but you know what? I'm going to get you there little by little. Just like I got this man to see in an incremental fashion, I'm going to get you to see spiritually in the same way. That's all that's happening here. Here's two verses that later Paul would write about this very doctrine. I want you to just look at these with me. Philippians 1.6. Paul said this, I'm sure that he who began a good work in you, speaking of the moment God set us apart, read the yellow words with me, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's this idea of progressive sanctification. And I love Jude when he writes about this. Look what he says. Now to him who is able to, say it church, keep you from stumbling and to what? Present you blameless and he goes on to talk about the beauty of that day and how that brings God glory you see who's doing the sanctifying it's Jesus he's patient with those of slow faith so this take home truth today this this narrative of Christ resisting the Pharisees demand 
and yet responding so beautifully to the disciples' honest uh, you know, slowness, it's just a great comfort for us. Don't pretend you have to know it all. Don't act like you have to have it all in control or that you have no questions. What God loves is an honest heart, even if you've got a thousand questions. Come before him and just lay your heart out before him. Commune with him. Share with him. God is so patient. He'll walk you from point A to point B to point C all the way to the end. He'll progressively sanctify all those who believe. He loves to walk with people who are slow of faith. You say, so Todd, what do I do with this information? I, I kind of see the contrast. I see what Christ is doing. Yeah, what do I do with this? I have one simple, I'll call it a to-do or an action point. It's more than a tip today, all right? But here, here's our response to, to Christ's commitment to being faithfully um, patient even when we're slow of faith. Here's our response to that. Keep trusting Jesus. See, I want to lay this on you. Listen very carefully. Your, your next step in your Christian faith, in your Christian walk, is very similar to your first step. It's always by faith. I would say that your next step is just a version of your first step. We never remove ourselves from needing to walk by faith. In fact, I would say this to you. If you've arrived at a place like, you know, I don't, I don't need much faith. I've got this handled. That should be worrisome. That's spiritually worrisome. This is what Paul argued with the Galatians about. When the Galatians were suddenly started by faith, and then they began to rely on their own works. He said, you're foolish. Why would you think you could start with faith and then kind of revert back to doing your own thing without the need for faith? And so the, the, the key action for us in response to this narrative is to simply keep trusting Jesus. Here's why. It's not the strength of your faith that's giving you progress in your walk. It's the object of your faith. I'll just go back to the three narratives that were in Mark 7 and 8. We didn't look at these in detail, but one of the reasons they're there is to show us that it's not the strength of their faith because every person in these three miracles prior to the Pharisees wanting a sign, they're all believing just by a thread, we might could say. The lady who had the demon-possessed daughter, she felt like she, she was a Gentile, and she knew that the gospel did not come to her first. She was aware of that fact. And she classifies herself as a dog. And, and, and she admittedly, she says, I don't have any rights here. I mean, how many times do you hear that in our culture today? Never. Okay, let's clear that up. We're in a right-infested society, right? Everyone's got a right to the table. She actually says, I know I shouldn't be here. I'm a dog. I mean, she's not like, you know, baiting him with some... Instagram moment to see if he's going to say something bad and she'll post it. She's not trying to tempt him. She's actually saying, you have no right to be merciful to me. And he says, that kind of faith, man, today your daughter's healed. I mean, what he saw was a, 
was amazing faith. We would say that's just, man, it seems weak. It seems meager. But it wasn't her faith that was strong. It was the fact that her, her faith was in Christ. She knew he was who he said he was. So the, the real point is that the strength of your faith is not the issue. It's the object. It's Jesus. The deaf and mute man. Same thing. They begged him to lay his hand on him, verse 32 says. He takes him from the crowd privately, puts his fingers into his ears, and heals him. The sense is that they were kind of bringing him and help, hoping that Christ would heal this man. I mean, did he believe it? Again, it's some of the situation where someone's kind of bringing someone on their behalf. You get the sense like, well, if it works, give it a shot. That's what this deaf and mute guy's thinking. Of course, he can't say it and he can't hear it. He's almost in this helpless situation. And yet, God does a miracle for him because it's not the strength of his faith, but the object of his faith. And then there's 4,000 people who have been with Christ for three days and they're hungry. And the sense of the text is that they know they're hungry, but they're not sure what to do. And Christ has compassion on them and feeds them. I mean, all three of these are people who, from our estimation, would probably be seen as very weak in their faith. And how did Christ respond to them? With amazing power. Because it's not the strength of someone's faith, but the object of it that makes all the difference. Let me give you a quick illustration. Let's say you and a friend fall into the waters of Niagara Falls. And you realize you're headed for Niagara Falls. It's just a matter of a few seconds and you're toast. You're floating on this like, you know, branch or something and you're just being thrown around. And then you look to the shore and you see someone say, I've got a rope, I've got a rope. And they throw you a rope. And you debate, should I grab the rope or should I hold on to the branch? You're going to grab the rope. So you grab the rope and your friend grabs the rope. But then he sees this massive log nearby. He says, hey, that log is bigger than the rope. I'll grab the log. So he leaves the rope and grabs the log. But he fails to realize the log's not connected to the shore. And so though he had a really big log, guess what goes over the falls? Your friend and a really big log. And guess where you are? You're saved with a small rope because it's tied to the shore. My point is this. You can have a really big log of good works, a really big log of finances, a really big log of a good name. But if it's not tied to the shore, it's still going over. The key of faith is not how big your faith is, how big a log you have. It's what is your rope tied to. It's the object of your faith. And you could have the smallest rope you can imagine. But if it's tied to Jesus, you are safe. That's why I say to you, this is a, a contrasting view of a group of folks who just wanted Christ to prove it one more time but never really intended to believe. And yet here's 12 guys who admittedly had a lot of questions and yet Christ was so patient with them and brought them along every step of the way because Jesus will not pretend when a stiff neck is disguised as a seeking mind. He won't tolerate that. He won't play that game. But he will be so, so patient when slow faith is accompanied by a willing heart. Man, could the church say hallelujah for that? Amen. Don't we have a beautiful, wonderful Savior who walks with us faithfully and patiently. He knows that we're but dust. He knows that we're weak. So what do 
weak, dusty people do? We keep trusting Jesus. That's your only task today. John and Christy, I don't have an answer, and this church doesn't. We would just add, we would just embolden you to keep trusting Jesus. And thank you for the way in these past few days, even in your pain, Jim and Sarah too, in your pain, you just said even to me, you said, we're just going to trust the Lord. I look around the room at other people here in situations that maybe not quite as urgent in that sense that happened Thursday, but you have things you're dealing with from medical issues, job situations, relationships, decisions. Keep trusting Jesus. Your next step in your slow faith is the same as it was when you first began your faith. The just shall live by faith. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.